0: Space, the final metaphor. Why do central bankers offer spirographic retrograde answers? Because they operate within a Ptolemaic paradigm, a geocentric model of our monetary system in which the central bank is the hub around which all else revolves. Why is unobservable offshore credit fundamentally important? Because, like dark matter and dark energy, this shadow money represents the broad majority of material and heat that constitute our monetary universe. Which brings your podcaster to the 21st chapter of The Courage to Act, authored by Ben Berninke. There, the former chairman defends the Fed's second quantitative easing in 2010, because of an economic false dawn. No mere rhetorical flourish. The false dawn is a regular astral phenomenon. Each autumn and spring, the northern and southern latitudes, respectively, will observe a triangular diffusion of light rising above the horizon. It seems to herald recovery from the darkness. But soul won't come. Not yet, at least. Light? Yes, but the wrong kind. Instead of a medley of warm colors refracted by the near atmosphere, the false dawn is a sterile white originating far beyond our Earth in cold space. Officially known as the zodiacal light, we witness interplanetary dust particles reflecting sunlight. Perhaps not surprisingly, Bernanke's book had no further chapters on economic false dawns despite their taking on an astronomical regularity, arriving again and again and again in 2011, 2014, and 2017. Jeff Snyder, part-time monetary sleuth and full-time Cosmos student, recognizes the difference between Reflation's false dawn and Recovery's warm glow. In this, the 56th episode of Making Sense, we review the light, Coming over the horizon from negative repo rates, surging M2 money supply, and rising US Treasury yields, we find it cold and fallow, gray. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeff Snyder, the Head of Global Research for Alhambra Partners, and I have been doing, my name is Emil Kalinowski, by the way, we have been doing this show Making Sense, a Eurodollar University production, almost for a year. And in that time, two questions have come up most frequently. Number one, what are bank reserves? What can they be used for? And number two only came up recently in the last two weeks. And that question is, what happened in the repo market? Why are rates negative in the repo market? What's happening to the treasuries used as collateral? That came up about two weeks ago. Jeff and I. Did not talk about it last week. Wow. Emil, are you gonna talk about this? Are you guys talking about this? What are you guys doing? Uh, when is this mm-hmm. gonna come up? Here's a tweet I received, this one I saved. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you talk about the repo disorder, that will be the end of it. I will not look for you, I will not pursue you, but if you don't, I will look for you, I will find you. It goes on from there. Jeff, please, for my safety and for the edification of the audience, what happened? Where shall we start with the repo market, the disorder, its specialness, where do we begin?
1: Well, first of all, I don't think it's our policy that we negotiate with um, reader terrorists who threaten your life and your and your uh, well-being. So we should just probably just give right into them. Well, there's no negotiation here. We'll give the people what they want, right? Let's talk about repo. Let's first of all let's start with what is actually going on in the repo market, and really it's something called specialness, which isn't all that abnormal. Um, repo, you know, there's it's not like there's a single market. It's not like a single security trades all uh, all the time. All sorts of QSIPS, all sorts of individual securities are traded, they're borrowed, they're lent, there are all sorts of things going on. And at times certain securities become more valuable or more in demand than others. And when we see that happen, that security becomes special and it creates something called specialness. When we look at something called the repo rate, the general collateral repo rate, for example, That applies, as it says, to general collateral. And if a repo security, a particular U.S. Treasury instrument or MBS instrument, too, becomes special, it's going to trade differently than the general collateral rate. Usually the the rate on the repo that goes special will go below the general collateral rate. And that's how we know it's special. That, that, That denotes to us its specialness. So. That happens all the time. There's always there's always a repo securities trading special, but they don't always get to be so special that even the mainstream media talks about repo again, which apparently the media never likes to talk about repo. And maybe this is why, because it seems like it's a really complicated tangled mess. But by, by and large, what we're seeing is that there are, especially the 10 year QSIPS around the 10 year uh, maturity, Over the last couple of weeks, they had traded so
0: ridiculously special that it became something of a a news event. So QCIP, for those that don't know, is the identification number of a particular treasury security or stock or some financial instrument. So we're talking about a specific stock, a non-fungible, I guess that's non-fungible tokens are in uh, in the mainstream right now. So it's a specific security, And we don't see this in the general collateral markets because you can replace one 10-year with another 10-year treasury security. Is that right? Yeah, and remember,
1: there is no 10-year. There is no bond that is exactly 10 years of maturity. Even the auction bond, like right now, there was an auction conducted this week, which was a 10-year reopening. And what that says is that it was actually sold off as a nine-year and 10-month of maturity. So, I mean, there is no exact 10-year. There's a bunch of different QSIPs that trade close to that 10-year maturity. And don't forget, there's, there's also, say, 20-year bonds that were sold 10 years ago that still have 10 years to maturity. So they kind of get thrown in the mix, too, because they have 10 years left. So there's a whole bunch of securities that are sort of like 10 years. And so which ones are, which ones are trading special, which ones are not trading special? That's really kind of the issue, is that when they do trade special, what that tells
0: us is there's additional demand for them. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, so we sort of set the stage, and now we're gonna go back and give a couple of reasons. That's what you do, Jeff, you give a couple of reasons why this might be the case. And the article that we're gonna be referencing for everyone uh, so they can read along is Deja Vu, Treasury Shorts Meet Treasury Shortages, posted March 9th at Alhambra Partners. And you begin, Jeff, by telling us that one of the reasons why this might be happening is because investors might be short bonds. Can you tell us the story of uh, why they might be short bonds? And then the very interesting dynamic of not finding, buying back when you're short. Maybe I'm skipping too far ahead, but that's the part that I really want to get to is uh, how you borrow more to give back what you originally borrowed. But why are uh, why are investors short bonds?
1: Yeah, it's the same thing as shorting stocks, right? You're betting on the price to go down. So if you sell something today, you're hoping that you can buy it back in the future at a much lower price, profiting the profiting the difference. And it's no different. Speculators operate, you know, speculators are going to short betting on the price declines in any market they can possibly find, including the U.S. Treasury market. And so if you believe that the 10 year U.S. Treasury, for example, is primed for a fall in price. Which would be rising yields, you might short that section under the curve and heavily short it. And that's indeed what, again, it's a regular part of the marketplace. There's always speculative shorts in any marketplace that are looking to profit, you know, either short term or longer term or intermediate term on price movements, uh, price movements that they can take advantage of. And when you're shorting a, a treasury bond, just like shorting a stock, you have to borrow the security in order to sell it and then
0: at later time cover that that short sale. That's right. Instead of buying first and later selling high, you reverse the process. You sell high and then buy back later, but you don't own it. So how can you sell it? You borrow it. And as a speculator or investor, you have to borrow it from someone. Who? What repositories have bushels of these treasury securities and do they remain calm? Are they saying, oh yeah, sure, borrow. You can borrow these treasury securities. Or do they sometimes get a little antsy and want them back?
1: Well, no, it's, it's you know, the, who has the treasuries? Well, the biggest source of treasuries in the world is the Federal Reserve. There's some a portfolio, but that's no good because that's just locked up in bureaucratic mess. <laughs> yes, they have a reverse repo, but you're not going to get you're not going to get treasuries from the Fed. So then you can only go to pension funds, insurance companies, people, who are, uh, institutions that have large static portfolios of securities because they have to. But you can't go to a pension fund and say, hey, I want to borrow your treasury." You have to work through a dealer. So the dealer is the one who has a securities lending business that's set up for decades and has been transacting with uh, pension funds and insurance companies and other foreign, um, what they call silos, that have available securities that can be lent out. So through the securities lending business of bank dealers, that's where you go to get your short, where you get to borrow the treasury security you don't own to sell into the marketplace to try to profit on a declining price.
0: And so sometimes these specific treasury securities or mortgage-backed securities, they trade below a floor. And people that don't follow the market very closely may not know what the floor happens to be at any one moment. But one intuitive floor is zero, you would think, like oil, it shouldn't go below zero or interest rates. And yet sometimes we do see a special treasury security trading special below zero. And what does that mean? It means someone is paying someone else to pay pay them cash.
1: Yeah. You want to borrow my cash? I'm going to pay you to borrow my cash, which sounds um, ridiculous. It sounds absurd, but that's, it's indicative of the high degree of demand for a specific security. Now I want to back up just one step before we get to that, you know, in in when you're shorting when you're shorting any securities like this including uh, treasuries, do you have an obligation sometimes to replace the security you've borrowed with the exact same security you borrowed. Now in general repo it's not always that way. Usually, if you borrow a security to to go into the repo market uh, through securities lending, you don't have to put back. You don't have to give back the same security you borrowed. You can, you can give back one that's kind of near the same characteristic or mirrors the same characteristics as the one you borrowed. But there are occasions when you have to, when you have to, when you go to cover your borrow what you borrowed, you have to re, uh, re-deliver the exact same security that you initially started with. And So that creates an incentive or it creates a sort of a bottleneck if you're not the only one who is short a particular security and you're not the only one who has an obligation to redeliver that security, which is now where we're getting into why these particular securities, the particular QSIPs trade so much special in these occasions when everybody is short the same security and has the obligation to redeliver the same security in order to close out their
0: trade. I'm going to read an article or a little quick comment here from Bloomberg, but it's not about uh, the repo disorder that just happened and repo rates trading special recently. This is back from 2013. And now we're going to diverge. We're going to show what the second reason why this might be happening. Cause in the mainstream, the main reason is, well, reflation, you're selling short because things are getting better. treasury securities should be falling but there might be another reason and we're going to pull up a graph from 2013 okay this is from bloomberg summer of 2013 quote treasury notes with maturities ranging from two to seven years have become coveted in the short-term market for borrowing and lending securities as the government auctions more of the securities this week traders have been willing to pay to borrow the debt in exchange for loaning cash for the most actively traded five, seven, and 10 year notes with repurchase agreement rates negative. Many times traders short or sell securities they've borrowed in the repo market ahead of a treasury sale to profit if prices of the securities fall after auction. Okay, okay. Let me pull up the chart, Jeff, and then you tell us why mm, the is yeah, like- off.
1: Well, like i said before i mean the trading special is not something that never happened it happens and it happens particularly around certain periods in in history 2013 was another one and it makes sense why that would we would have a lot of shorts in the summer of the taper tantrum summer of 2013 when interest rates were rising meaning treasury bond prices were falling of course that's going to attract a lot of interest from speculative shorts who were absolutely short that market in the summer of 2013. But was that the only thing going on? And that's really what we're trying to get at here. Is shorting treasuries, betting on their price falling, the only reason why we would have such a high demand for collateral that it becomes so special it sticks out into the mainstream media? And if you actually look at what happened in 2013, what you'll see is that this outbreak of specials, a cluster of specials, if you want to call it that, Actually started much, much earlier in the year, going back to even February 2013, so that by March 15th, I think we talked about this before, Ramil, the Treasury Department actually issued a large position report request, which said, hey, if you're a big bank, you're a primary dealer, you need to tell us if you're accumulating a large position, and especially the 10-year treasury, because we're seeing we're seeing problems show up in uh repo market and repo specialists because as early as february and march of 2013 a lot of specials a lot of negative repo rate, negative special repo rates were starting to uh, cause some angst and anxiety not just in in uh, the marketplace but among even central bankers and treasury officials but i'm sure as you can see in the chart here if we're having repo specialness happen as early as uh february march 2013 what was that reason was that because of people was it because of speculators betting on price declines that's not really likely because at that time there wasn't a whole lot of inflation. there certainly wasn't a taper tantrum that didn't come until may and there wasn't much of a sell-off anyway because as you can see uh interest rates were falling during those couple months which meant treasury prices were rising so if, if speculators were shorting they weren't shorting a lot and they weren't making very good bets
0: exactly so and then, but later it made sense, right? In this graph after June, then yeah, we can so say, okay. Shorts
1: make sense in the second half, but not the first half. And so we have to ask what was going on in the first half of the chart that may not have been, you know, may not have ended and in, in, um, changed over to another thing in the second half. And the clue is right, is what you see, what I have circled here in the Treasury bill yields. So now you have treasury bill yields falling, which means increased demand for bills. And why would that be? Of course, anybody who's watched the show or read anything about treasury collateral and repo knows it's you know the same collateral shortage, especially when we think about what was the Federal Reserve doing during this particular period, the first half of 2013. The Federal Reserve had just implemented QE4 at the end of December, 2012, yes, there were four QE's up to that point and QE4 was focused entirely on buying US Treasuries, whereas QE3 a couple months earlier had bought MBS securities or manipulated the MBS market. And not only that, when the Federal Reserve was conducted QE4 in early 2013, they were buying on the run bills and notes and bonds too. So they were in the on the run market where much of this, it's the most pristine, best quality collateral there is, is the -the on-the-run securities. So the Fed was taking up on-the-run securities before any of the shorts showed up, before any of that stuff later in the summer. And so we had was the Fed intruding itself, removing collateral from the system that created a shortage situation. Now they stopped buying on-the-run securities around, I believe it was May, around the time we saw the taper tantrum. They stopped buying on-the-run securities But that doesn't mean this collateral shortage ended and the shorts took over. And so what we're, what we're looking at by that chart is that before the shorts ever got involved in creating specialness in repo, indicating huge demand for over, you know, high demand for collateral, there was the underlying collateral shortage the, the entire time, which suggests that when repos went special in the summertime, the shorts were only highlight, they're serving to highlight the
0: overall collateral environment, which was not very good, uh, buying on the run Treasury securities is monetary malpractice, and they should have been in front of Congress to answer for this crime. But twenty thirteen, well, <laughs> they were. Just, somebody yeah, should have asked. As-
1: Well, no, somebody did. In fact, you know, personal story here
0: at that time,
1: I worked with, uh, I won't say, but a a couple of people in Congress who were supposed to bring Ben Bernanke in to testify in front of the house, but eventually they arranged for a private meeting and they actually asked for my input about what to ask because of all this repo stuff going on. And, you know, this was, I believe, June or July of 2013. And I told them, look, actually it was before that, because it it was, it was a, while the on-the-run issue was still going on, but anyway, you know, I, I told them, look, they're buying on-the-run stuff. The market needs the on-the-run. The Fed's just stripping collateral from the system. Didn't hear back after the the uh, this uh, private meeting took place. And what I heard from one of the congressman's chief of staff was, yes, they had the meeting. They started to question Mr. Bernanke, who just ran circles around them because they didn't understand what they were talking about. And even though Ben Bernanke probably doesn't understand enough of the repo market to to obviously not screw it up. knows more than they did. And probably, I believe, you know, as economists and central bankers always do, reverts into his mathematics rather than his economics, which simply serves to shut down all debate. So yes, at the time in 2013, there was official interest. And I can attest to that personally over what the hell's going on in repo. And the problem is, as it always is, politicians are not equipped to even understand what's going on enough so that they can formulate and, and uh, formulate the right questions and
0: get the right answers. Thank you for sharing that with us, Jeff. Absolutely fascinating. I would have loved to have been a fly on that wall. Okay. So 2013, there's a mix. There's the collateral shortage, bad disorder, and there's also the reflation. So it makes sense shorting. There was no conflating the two in 2020. The last time we saw a repo specialist outbreak. Clearly, it was a shortage, it was disorder, deflation, dis- and that's we knew that was what was happening. And now we're in 2021, and I suppose it's a mix of the two then, back to what we saw in 2013.
1: Yeah, we've got the bill yields falling previous to this outbreak of shorting, although there was a large short position in the futures market going back to 2019, so that's always been there. But really, we haven't seen the special issue prop up, crop up until, as you pointed out, you know, just recently, which again proposes, okay, yes, there are definitely shorts in the marketplace. Interest rates are rising, treasury bond, uh, especially note, uh, longer note um, prices are falling. So we know that shorts are out there. They're out there heavily shorting the marketplace. So that would definitely create some of the specialists there. But like 2013, aren't we also seeing the underlying overall structural shortage issue that we see in bills because bill prices have skyrocketed at the same time note and uh, bond prices have fallen so i to me it looks a lot like summer 2013 again where we have yes it's reflation and shorting treasuries and speculation and those kinds of things but underlying it is the same structural problems that we've seen all along
0: Jeff, I see here your final sentence in this article may be referencing what we just talked about, your experience in 2013. U.S. central bankers, however, don't even want to talk about it on the very suspiciously few occasions asked. That too remains unchanged from 2013. And you hyperlink to another article, which you've caught me. I didn't click on. Forgive me. (laughs) What kind of a host am I? A bad one. Is that what you link to that story you just told us? No,
1: that was actually Jay Powell's recent testimony from Humphrey Hawkins, where he was asked okay. about treasury bill prices and collateral shortage. Um, and, uh, I won't say much more than that, other than to, uh, refer to the previous story.
0: Okay. Wonderful. Well, Jeff, is there anything we didn't cover on this, uh, very important topic? Yeah, I think that this, what I would say in
1: summation is yes, the shorts are one of the primary reasons we're seeing the specialness in repo, but the reason we're seeing it is because these shorts, you know, a normal functioning marketplace where we don't have a collateral shortage underlying everything, we wouldn't notice shorts, even when they're heavily involved in uh, shorting securities, because a normally functioning market would be, would have easily absorbed any kind of imbalances like that. This is a natural economic imbalance. It's not some major thing, or at least it shouldn't be. The only reason it becomes major, and the only reason why the shorts and the specialist becomes a major news item is because we have this underlying collateral shortage that
0: I believe has actually gotten worse over the last couple of months. Let's move on to part two of this episode where we're going to talk about M2 money supply absolutely taking off vertically. Might that mean that inflation is on its way? money supply is accelerating like we haven't seen for a very long time. But what kind of money supply? Is it all of the money supply? That's a question we don't often ask when we're reading articles in the newspaper or looking at charts on Twitter. And Jeff Snyder, Head of Global Research for Alhambra Partners is gonna help us with that. Jeff, you actually offer some quarter to the team inflation, you say, you know what, I I understand why you think inflation might be coming here because of this. And so what is it? What, what statistic are people pointing at and saying inflation? It's the M2 money
1: statistic or the M1 if you want to go back, if you want to go even more basic, but either one, M1 and M2 have absolutely exploded since last March. And that seems consistent with the the narrative of money printing and the fact that uh, uh, the world has been flooded with digital dollars and, and the like, and that this is going to unleash some kind of inflationary Armageddon, uh, at least something like the great, refla- great inflation of the 70s, if not Weimar hyperinflation like 1920s Germany. And when you look at it, you say, yeah, <laughs> there's something there. That's it's not something you 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 can't look away from. I mean it's 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 pretty obvious there's a massive amount of at least M2 money being printed um going back
0: for over a year now. That's right. We're looking at a logarithmic chart which should be a straight line. It is a straight line and when you see a kink in a logarithmic chart, that's serious. And yeah, let me pull up It's an it's an enormous increase. So
1: Talking about people, who, at least those who are paying attention to the M statistics and money supply, you can understand why they say, "Okay, prepare. Inflation's coming, and it's going to be hot and heavy." As opposed to, you know, the mainstream media narrative about inflation, which is more of, "Oh, Jay Powell says this, or you know, everybody else says that." At least when you're looking at this, you can say, "Look, money supply, inflation; those two things historically go together, and here we have an absolutely enormous increase." I believe it's the largest increase
0: since the 1940s. And Jeff, the OECD has a measure called M3. We'll probably discuss that the Fed stopped doing M3 in 2007 or six? 2006, yeah. Right on the eve. Anyways, they stopped doing M3, but the OECD continues doing M3, not just for the United States, but the 30-some countries that belong to the organization. And Jeff, what we're looking at now on this chart, which shows a surge, a surge that we haven't seen in decades is also true in the OECD country by country, Japan, France, Germany, Spain, Britain, everyone. And if you look at it on a aggregated basis, the OECD M3 money measure hasn't been this high since the mid eighties and their statistics only go back to the uh, 1980s in for the entirety, the OECD total, but for individual countries, it goes back further. But your point is, yes, wow, surge. And I would think, Jeff, this means that this is what we've been waiting for, you and I, money in banks belonging to businesses and people. This is it. So I guess the question then is, why aren't you wearing one of those New Year's Eve hats with the little, the blower thing and happy and what's missing well what is m2 money let's let's
1: talk about that what are we actually what are we actually measuring here and it's really just deposit based money it's demand deposits and transaction deposits along with time deposits and things like that so it's traditional depository banking which uh, you and I Emil we don't really talk about all that much because traditional depository banking is a dinosaur it's something that uh, really hasn't played a central role in the monetary system for Before maybe before I was even born. So M2 doesn't really get me all excited, except as if it was something corroborated in the more interesting monetary realm that we talk about more often. I may have jumped ahead
0: by asking you what's missing, because in this article, which by the way is called What Must Lie Beyond the M's, posted on the 10th of March at Alhambra Partners, before we get to what's missing, what you were just talking about, Uh, You talk about just the bare-bone facts, Jeff, that those charts that we were looking at show a surge in money, but we just got a report for inflation, headline inflation and core inflation, and as you detail, the lowest lowest percentile results in, in decades, in the series history. So, it's just, we know it's not working, right? Is that right? We're missing something, right? Because
1: look, the, the, the point, yeah, that chart is very impressive with M2. But remember when it started, we're talking about April and May of last year. So for an entire year, M2 money supply has been rising at better than 20%. In fact, the latest numbers are closer to 30%. So how can we go an entire year with that type of monetary flood and not see it flood every last vestige of consumer prices. And I know people will say, oh, stock market, real estate, all these other things." yeah, sure, great. But you know why are housing prices going up as people buy houses, but rental prices are falling or decelerating, the, the rise of rental prices are decelerating. The money is not broadly flooding through the entire economy. As we talked about before, the, what are we talking about with inflation? And so how can that be? How can we have 20 plus percent for an entire year of monetary flood and not see it somewhere in consumer prices. And as you pointed out, you know, the headline CPI for February was 1.7%, and that was up uh, about 30 basis points on oil, oil, commodities. Those are the only things going, I, oh, commodities are the canary in the coal mine. That's the one that's, you know, that's, that's, that's how we know inflation is coming. But again, 30% growth for an entire year in money supply, and all we got is copper and oil? No, so we're missing something. We're missing something important about the relationship between money and inflation and recovery, I would say, because if money is floating through, flooding through the economy, we wouldn't have 10
0: million Americans still out of work. And no, yes, that's and,
1: not COVID restrictions.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, and yeah. And then you mentioned the core CPI, which came in at 1.28 for February uh, year over year. And you mentioned that this is the uh, in the bottom third percentile on record. Although, Jeff, you have to mention to the audience that the statistics only go back to 1957 or so. So, you know, maybe not enough time has passed. but even so,
1: there's, you know, the incongruity, right? We have the most rapid M2 money growth since the 40s, and yet among the lowest consumer inflation advances since the 50s. So, to me, those two things, you know, they should not be together. And again, a year is more than enough time, if we were seeing legitimate, effective money flowing through the economy, that it would show up in consumer prices. It would show up in every consumer price. We wouldn't have just food prices increases increasing, but not services or anything else. We would see everything
0: going up. Now, recently, the Federal Reserve changed the definition of M2, but this isn't just to include, uh, what was it, savings deposits, right, in, uh, in M1, is that right, Jeff? yeah well there's there's really no
1: distinction anymore last year they they removed all you know savings it used to be a big deal when actually people converted their deposit balances into cash and so to qualify for a savings deposit which had a different reserve requirement, you had to limit their access to six times a month because that way they couldn't withdraw cash from you at a regular basis and that meant it was a much safer deposit from the bank's perspective and last year they eliminated the federal Reserve eliminated that portion of regulation D and said we don't care because people don't use cash anyway. So what's the difference? And the effect of that was that beginning February 2021, a big portion of what used to be non-M1, M2, the savings deposits now just go into M1, which is, if you look at M1, M1 has an even bigger increase. It went from something like 4 trillion to 11 trillion overnight, but simply as a reclassification. But, you know, the, the important part of it is, Look, even the Fed knows that physical hand-to-hand cash is such a small part of the system. It doesn't really matter if it's M1 or M2. It's
0: all basically the same kind of deposit money. It doesn't really matter about M. That's not the first time the Fed has thought that. You've got some quotes in here, Jeff, from when? The 1970s, 1974, when two individuals were complaining that uh, the M1, M2, M3, or we, we need to move to M3 because this is not working. So it's not, they knew then, Jeff, what happens to that scholarship that left? Yeah, we're talking, I mean, early 1970s,
1: even the, I mean, remember, the Federal Reserve is the last people to catch up on monetary evolution because once they once they, they figure something out, I think they figure something out, they believe the world doesn't change. So when they went to depository money in the 50s and 60s, they said, ah, we'll never have to change again. So here by the early 1970s with the Euro dollar market in full bloom outside the United States, they're starting to say, okay, now these M's we thought were going to be permanent part of the architecture are no longer even appropriate, and in many ways, they're entirely obsolete or becoming obsolete already. Remember, this is 50 years ago, M1 and M2 are becoming obsolete in the minds of the Federal Reserve during the great inflation. And one of the, uh, the the Federal Reserve vice chairman at the time, George Mitchell, when I get the quote correct, George Mitchell said, look, the money supply statistics we have at the time have never been as useless as they are now. Again, 1974. And he even said why. One of the re- big reasons why is because these things called euro dollars, this, these dollars outside the United States are having a dramatic impact on things going on inside the United States. And as we know, M1 and M2 are only domestic depository-based monetary statistics. They are not offshore Eurodollar wholesale statistics, which is what Mr. Mitchell was pointing toward. He said, we need to come up with an M3 that incorporates all these new forms of money that banks are actually using, as well in not just Eurodollars, but also repo. And as we've talked about before, and I've written about before extensively, they never really did. They created an M3 statistics, but it was always half hearted. It was never like we need, there was never a real effort to say we're going to include every little bit of repo we can find, which means we have to conduct an exhaustive investigation of where to find repo. And then euro dollars, all this stuff going on inside the United States isn't just dollars on deposit, euro dollar deposits. There are all sorts of real weird and exotic formats that are really, really hard to find. Because if two banks are not located in the United States transacting in dollars, it doesn't show up anywhere. So what the Fed said was, as they moved into the 1970s, late 1970s and 1980s was, this M stuff is just too difficult and we don't think we'll ever be able to do it. We'll put out an M3. It'll include some Euro dollar deposit numbers. It'll include some primary dealer repos. It won't include nearly enough of those, but we're not gonna pay attention to these monetary statistics anyway, because since we can't define money, we're just gonna move on to an expectations-based policy. And that explains why M3 was discontinued in 2006, because it
0: was never much of a use anyway. That's right, and you're not saying that that they doubted it would be successful. That w- you could see it in the transcripts. Here's a contemporary of, uh, Vice Chairman Mitchell, Coombs, Charlie Coombs, who said in reply, Mr. Coombs said an effort could be made to develop such a measure, but he doubted that it would be successful. The volume of funds, which might be shifted back and forth between the euro dollar system and the internal system was too much. Jeff.
1: Yeah. And that's 50 years, 50 years ago. And so. Go, circling back to what we're talking about M2 in 2021, if they were thinking M2 was obsolete because it didn't include enough in it, all this offshore money, then what does it mean 50 years later? Now, obviously we know the answer to that because, you know, paying attention to what really went on in 2008, which was a global dollar shortage that wasn't really picked up in M2 or anything else. What we're really looking at is we are trying to look at the stuff that must be missing from M2.
0: And Jeff, you made a key point here that I want to underline for everyone. our discussion here, let me read the quote our discussion that m one m two is incomplete that is all in a reference to the internal dollars in the united States the onshore dollars uh, let me
1: Onshore see. depository dollars, not even just domestic it's just on it's specific it's a it's a narrow subset of the entire global monetary system.
0: Yes, M2 has increased dramatically in 2020, 21, but that only includes domestic deposit-based money and does not include not one single penny non-domestic, non-deposit-based money to which offshore there's an enormous amount, enormous amount. And when you say enormous, uh, you're underplaying it there. It's, uh, it's, it's overwhelmingly bigger than the onshore dollars. So yeah, Yeah, it's literally indescribable. (laughs) Jeff, do we have time to go over some of these statistics that you link in your article here uh, in the Z1 that you wrote about last year and show a couple of graphs just to show the magnitude of what M3, M4, M5, M6 might be missing from the system. Yeah, I think it's worthwhile going over
1: those because, you know, again, when you focus on M2, which is not a small statistic, we're talking about, I think, 19 trillion. So I mean, M2 is not small. When you look at, you know, these monetary M's, and you think, well, okay, yes, yeah, so it's a subset of the global monetary system, but it's still trillions of dollars here. It's trillions of de- depository money. So it's something, it's got to be something, right? And so, you know, first of all, much of the depository money that's been created is related to quantitative easing. It's not because of quantitative easing, it's because the commercial banking system had created checkable deposits to buy the bonds to eventually sell to the Fed, to buy the bonds from the Treasury Department to eventually sell to the Fed. That's why you can see on the dotted line here, for those of you who are, who are watching on YouTube, you know the, the checkable deposits that are not held by the federal government hasn't really changed all that much from its trend whereas checkable deposits
0: for the federal government has exploded upward. So congratulations so, to Bernanke, Yellen, Powell. We're right on trend.
1: We're right on trend. Yeah, exactly. Except that's not the right trend. It's oh. the trend for depository money. But if you flip to uh, the next chart, what you'll see is that there are other forms of non-depository money. And again, these are just domestic, the dom- domestic part of it that, you know, asset-backed commercial paper, for, or asset-backed securities, for example, which was funded by commercial paper largely, um, much bigger, missing, much larger hole than even the recent increase in M1 and M2. And that's a hole that goes all the way back to 2007, 2008 that we've never gotten dug out of. We've never dug ourselves out of. The Fed has never printed, quote unquote, printed enough bank reserves to offset anything, assuming bank reserves are even useful to offset such a large decrease. And that's only one form of this domestic wholesale-based money. We're not even getting into the uh, the, the foreign or offshore parts of it because we don't really have any statistics for those.
0: For so, those of you – oh, go ahead, Jeff. No, go ahead. I was just going to say for those of you on the audio portion of this show, we're looking at a graph right now. And the profile here I would describe as looking like the Matterhorn in Zermatt in Switzerland. It's you're heading towards Zermatt, you're heading towards the Matterhorn. Increase, increase. You're going up. That's the trend you're on. And on the other side, absolute cliff. It's just a complete wipeout. You just you fall off the cliff's edge, and that's the money sump. That's the kind of money that our economy used to run on, and now it's missing. Checking, checkable deposits up. But nowhere near the trend of on what we were using. Let me yeah, scroll down another graph. Yeah, we're just trying to, to give graph. you
1: a, an idea of the scale here. So yes, the the, the increase in M two and checkable deposits that's that's pushing it higher. It's a pretty large increase, but it is by no means you know it is it, you know look at the decrease in other forms of money going back as far as two thousand two thousand seven and two thousand eight, and when you get into you know just some of the other more wholesale. More, I would argue, dynamic and more effective forms of money, like repo, Fed funds to a lesser extent. Again, the increase in uh, checkable deposits lately doesn't even come close to offsetting mon- money that's been you know, destroyed or, or, or uh, uh, that has just essentially disappeared over the last decade plus. What is this last graph that we're looking at? You're, now you're looking at? We're looking at credit. Okay. Because a lot of people focus and rightly on the credit end of it, right? Money is, money is a separate issue, but the lines between money and credit has blurred. But by and large, when we're looking at what's going on in the real economy, even in terms of asset prices, what we're looking at is input versus output. You have monetary input and then credit output. And if we have trouble in the monetary inputs, we would expect credit output to be uh, curtailed or harmed in some way. And that's exactly what we see. Like the great depression, 2007, 2008 had represented a paradigm shift or a complete change in the, a complete alteration in the behavior of the banking system. Because the monetary input was impaired and liquidity risks have become paramount, credit output has likewise fallen so far off trend. Yes, credit growth overall, we're talking about both bonds and, and uh, loans. Even though credit growth overall is at record highs, it is at nowhere near the pace that it used to be before the crisis. So again, monetary output or monetary input impaired, credit output likewise impaired.
0: Excellent, Jeff. Let me tell the audience where they can see these graphs in this article that we were referencing because it was a little bit ago when you wrote it. And then if there are any final thoughts about M2 and and money in general and how to measure it, uh, you, you jump right in. Here's where you can find those graphs we were just discussing. The article title is Taking You, the Fed's Bank Reserves and Bank Checkable Deposits for a Quick Stroll in the Monetary Zoo hosted on September 22nd, 2020 at Alhambra Partners. It's just, you know, the, I think the overall point
1: here is again, M2 surging, you know, huge spike in deposit that must deposit money. But as we're, we're laboring to categorize each and every time and highlight something must be missing. We don't see it coming out in consumer prices even after a year of this, which again proposes that there's more to the story beyond M2. And it's been that it's that that isn't just a recent thing. It's been the case for the last at least 50 years. Really going back to the to the beginnings of the wholesale Euro dollar revolution in the nineteen
0: fifties. Ladies and gentlemen, in part three, we're going to talk about the mainstream media interpretation of what US Treasuries are doing, what they mean for the rest of the world, and then we're going to present what the Euro dollar media, which is, you know, you're looking at it right here, what they think of what the US Treasury market is doing and how the mainstream media might not have the total picture. Ladies and gentlemen, are there too many treasuries? It seems like it, and that's what you hear in the mainstream financial media. You'll also hear that because treasury prices are falling and yields are rising, that's putting emerging markets at risk for a full recovery. We're gonna talk to Jeff Snyder, head of global research at Alhambra Partners, whether or not that's correct. Jeff, I'm gonna read a quote right now from who, from who, from someone, do you mention who it is? I'm gonna read it and then you jump in, and you tell us who it might be, okay. It's consistent with conventional assumptions, you say. Quote, the yield on the benchmark 10-year note nudged up to 1.557%, having peaked at 1.626% on Friday after Tuesday's auction of 58 billion in the US three-year notes, was well received. Yet many market investors remained wary with the next test of investor appetite for the government debt due later in the form of a 10-year auction and then on Thursday, a 30-year auction. This falls under the thesis of there are too many treasuries. Yeah, that was, a, that was a quote
1: from a recent, uh, I believe Reuters article, which was simply echoing the the, the idea that you know the government is auctioning off a lot more of debt because of the, everything that's happened over the last year or so and that there must be there has to be a limit to the amount of supply that the system can absorb that there's just not going to be uh, enough demand to, to meet what uh, the supply the government is supplying to the marketplace not just the bank marketplace but to, to the financial public in general and maybe that's why we're seeing interest rates rise at the long end of the yield curve because The government has finally surpassed the magical threshold where the market finally says we're now bond vigilantes for the first time in 30 years or
0: so. Well, they've had a couple of opportunities already. As you describe in your article, quote, what gold says about UST auctions posted on the 10th of March at Alhambra Partners. You say, well, this isn't the first time we've heard. There are too many treasuries argument. You say that it was first brought up in 2016 and then later as well in twenty eighteen and there was like a key key imped or what would the word be? The the thing that makes it go forward. What is it? The the story, the budget, right? The fiscal budget. That was yes, the truth. that got that. Yes. Yeah,
1: the deficit. Even though back in twenty sixteen when this first early story first emerged It wasn't really the same fiscal issues that we had in 2018, certainly, because 2018 was in the wake of the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, which had greatly increased the deficit for the first time since, I believe, 2013, 2014, somewhere around that period. So 2016, when we started hearing this about too many treasuries, it was kind of odd because it wasn't a supply issue. It couldn't have been a supply issue. And what had been going on at the time was that Treasuries were being, you know, the banking system, the primary dealers had been loading up on treasuries and that just mystified people, especially people who are quote unquote experts in the mainstream media who couldn't figure out why. Why would banking system be buying all of these treasuries? Don't they know inflation's right around the corner and recovery and why would they possibly want something that's gonna lose its value substantially over the coming months? And so the answer was, well, maybe, it's because foreigners in particular are selling treasuries and the banks are obligated to buy them back because of some duty to help out their foreign customers or something. I mean, there's so there must be this convoluted reasoning why the primary dealers were buying up all of these treasuries because it didn't otherwise make sense, given that Janet Yellen was so darn positive about inflation and recovery in 2016. And what
0: about 2018? same taxes. thing
1: <laughs> except at least there was the supply story but you know it gets back to what we've said all along. what i've said is certainly ever since you know i wrote i believe i quoted myself in 2016 is the whole story is absurd because we're asked to believe that banks are being stuck with instruments that they can't sell to the public at a time when the public overwhelmingly wants those things right in in march of 2016 there was no shortage of demand for U.S. Treasuries. So if the, tre- if the banking system had at all been stuck with these things, if there were too many of them, why didn't they just sell them to the public? Because the prices of U.S. Treasuries were sky high, which meant that they could have easily sold them to, to people who wanted them if indeed the banking system didn't, which then, of course, re- raises the question, maybe the banking system wanted them. They didn't believe in the reflationary story or the inflationary story and there might have been other reasons as well including things like repo and collateral shortages and all sorts of other things where they could make money holding on treasuries themselves and renting them out to people desperate for collateral so there are any number of reasons to not take this story at face value when it originally showed up and when it made its reappearance in 2018 as a supply issue it was equally ludicrous and absurd because at the same time The same thing if the banking system was, was being forced to hold too many treasuries this time, not just foreigners selling, but also because they're duty bound to buy anything at auction. So if indirect bidders don't show up at a treasury auction, leaving the commercial banking system or the primary dealers to buy up everything else that's left at a a treasury auction, if they're getting stuck with too many treasuries, we still have to ask why won't they just sell them to the public? And of course. As 2018 progressed, and then we got to the end of 2018, and Treasury prices started to rise precipitously, this sort of explanation completely fell apart because again, there was absolutely no reason why if the, if the primary dealers were being stuck with inventory they didn't want, they could not just dispose of it to a financial marketplace, the
0: secondary market that absolutely wanted any number of them. You mentioned the secondary market and as proof of your contention that these were in demand, you show the primary market, you show several graphs of auctions for several maturities for a different periods. We're looking at 2018 on these graphs all the way to 2021. And we see on the graphs here that there are plenty more bids below the going yield, meaning there's decent amount of demand for the securities. And Jeff, I guess the point here before we move on to part two of this section is, yeah, rising yields because of reflation, but not monetary inflation and economic recovery.
1: Yeah, and it's also not a supply. It's not the supply that's setting the secondary price, which is what dealers are are working off of. They're gonna they're gonna they're gonna bid for auction at whatever they believe they can In a pinch sell to the secondary market because that's really what a primary dealer's job is. That's the whole point of a primary dealer is to stand between the primary auction and the secondary market, which is the financial public because the government has an interest in selling off its debt smoothly. And if there are banks willing to warehouse those securities so that they can sell them off over time to the public, then yes, that's 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 a system that works smoothly. And the way that the dealers do that is they gauge secondary market interest, they know what the secondary market will absorb because it's their business to know. And so if they're, if they're stuck with too much, too many treasuries at auction, that would be reflected in their auction bidding uh, bidding prices. And we don't see anything like that. And so it's not supply that's driving treasury bond and note prices lower over the last couple of months. It's entirely a reflationary uh,
0: consideration in your title of this article you mention gold and you show a chart here does gold corroborate your thesis it's come off the highs over 2000 down to 1700 does that what does that mean in uh, the pers- you know the context of uh, of our star- our story today
1: well, gold is traditionally believed to be an inflation hedge and that's not quite right. Gold is actually a hedge against the biggest errors, which could be anything. What, you know, 1970s that happened to be runaway uncontrolled inflation globally. You go back to earlier time periods when gold was fixed price, it just it became hoarded, which essentially meant that its price went infinite because of deflationary pressures. So gold is an error hedge. And over the last several years, going back much further than last year, going back into 2018 and before, Gold prices have been almost perfectly inversely correlated with a treasury note, especially the 10-year bond. So as yields fell in 2018 and 2019, gold prices rose. Not because the market was saying inflation is rising like Jay Powell was trying to say. What the market was saying, both gold and treasury, was no, there's something bad going on here. We're seeing another bout of deflationary pressures that could be significant. And So gold prices rose pretty precipitously as treasury bond yields fell equally. And those two, those two things make sense too, because the opportunity cost of holding gold because it doesn't pay interest is something like a safe instrument like treasuries. So the lower US treasury rates went, the more it made sense to hold gold, especially if you were a gold investor and believed that US treasury rates were gonna go low and stay low. So they've inversely correlated with each other over this entire time into, into 2022, where gold prices actually hit their high a few days after treasury 10-year yields hit their low. And ever since then, they've been moving in the opposite direction. As treasury yields rise, and as fast as treasury yields rise, gold prices have fallen and as fast as gold prices have fallen. So there's, there's an inverse relationship there that tells us, again, gold is saying reflation, not inflation or big
0: error in that direction move on to the second part of this uh, section here. And there was an article that I received from a from a viewer of the show on Twitter. And of course, I'm a bad host, and I didn't write down their name. So please forgive me. But they sent me this article, which dovetails perfectly where we want to go next. And it was by the Wall Street Journal. The title is unexpected US growth surge could unbalance fragile global economy. A surprisingly strong surge in U.S. growth will drive a sharp rebound in the world economy this year, but the strength of the American bounce could unbalance weaker economies, particularly in the developing world. According to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the rise in the U.S. government bond yields in response to higher growth and inflation expectations could spark capital flight from emerging economies where vaccine campaigns have barely begun and whose economic recovery is expected to take longer. I don't know, Jeff, it seems, no, you know, right? I mean, we're all, what? The US economy is doing well and now, so everyone's <laughs> gonna run away from the emerging markets? If we're yeah, recovering- right.
1: How can that possibly we're be bad, to right? <laughs> it's, Especially with a globalized economy that has been synchronized so much mm, over the last mm. several decades you know if 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 one major part of it is doing well then usually you can count on other major parts doing well eventually it all seems to go together in one direction or the other so if if the us is legitimately surging along here we expect that rising tide to start lifting all boats but what you're saying is you know it's a it's a mainstream myth of what how does the dollar move the dollar's exchange value why does it rise why does it fall and really there's been all sorts of answers offered over the years and none of, them, none of them really reflect what actually happens. Most of them have to do with these, these, uh, these uh, ideas that go back a very, very long time to a system that no longer exists. So one of them is essentially interest rate differentials. If you believe that the US dollar represents safe assets and US dollar safe assets are yielding very little then people, portfolio managers will, especially fixed income portfolio managers, will search out returns overseas, and so the dollar will fall as "quote unquote" capital flows into other places, reaching for yield. Consequently, conversely, if the U.S. starts to do much better and bond yields rise, which we're already getting into the interest rate fallacy territory, which is another contradictory convection. But either way, U.S. yields start to rise. That means the the level of return on safe instruments, U.S. dollar safe instruments is much better. Conversely, capital flows out of those reach for yield emerging markets and starts to, quote unquote, come home. And so we have the U.S. doing well that harms emerging markets.
0: And that's exactly what how this uh, Wall Street Journal article continues. What you just said about the standard textbook explanation, that shows up in the quotes provided by the OECD chief economist uh, Boone. Uh, so I'm not even gonna read those because that's exactly what, what she was saying. The only other thing I would note here, Jeff, is you say that this may have happened already uh, in 2018. Is that right? Yeah, well, Something remember, similar?
1: Again, what, what's going on here is people are trying to make sense of what moves the dollar. And it makes, it sounds intuitive. Oh, you know, interest rates in the US go up, then, you know, everybody wants to come back to the United States. But are really invest fixed income portfolio managers able to move the dollar in that way? And there's the other part of this too, that over the last five years in particular, finally, finally, even the mainstream media and economists have realized that when the dollar goes up, that's not good. That's Mm. not a good thing. Go back to how this was talked about back in 2014, for example, when the dollar really spiked in the middle of that year people were che- oh this is great the us dollar means strength and all these kinds of things and it has been in the wake of all the evidence that shows when the dollar goes up it's bad for everyone the people are starting to try to put together all of these pieces yes the dollar goes up that's certainly bad for emerging markets so what is it that's driving the dollar up that could make it bad for the emerging markets capital flows it sounds like it seems to be uh, it sounds like it seems to be the uh, the 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 thing that checks off all the boxes, except it doesn't check off all the boxes because when you look at historically what happened, even in recent history, going back to you know, 2013, 2014 in particular, but also 2017, 2018, and 2019, what you see is that yes, initially bond yields rose in 2013, for example, during the quote unquote taper tantrum summer, US yields rose and so did the dollar and that created an emerging market crisis then. But then in 2014, Interestingly enough, bond yields began to to decline and decline sharply, yet the dollar didn't decline. In fact, the dollar spiked in the middle of 2014, even as U S interest rates were falling. So this interest rate differential portfolio flows, capital flows explanation doesn't hold water. The same thing again in 2018, where you had rising interest rates, rising nominal rates in 2018, the initial dollar spike in April and May of 2018. But then later in the year, Yields started to fall, yet the dollar stayed high and actually went higher. So it's not, that's not, that can't be the explanation for what goes on. And just, you know, spoiler alert here, what actually happens, what we're seeing is that, uh, you know, repo problems, dollar shortages, all these kinds of things, you can have a dollar shortage at the same time there is reflation in the longer end of the treasury curve. Those two things are not mutually exclusive, and as we have seen time and time again, in the initial phase of reflation and, and, and whatever, these uh, euro dollar shortage episodes, that actually does happen repeatedly. You have reflation in one part of the curve where the other part of the curve says it's never going to be any more than reflation. And eventually, that's what spikes, that's what contributes to the dollar disease
0: that, that harms emerging market economies. The article that we were discussing is called Standard Textbook Dollar or Euro Dollar Standard and it was posted on the 8th of March at Alhambra Partners. Jeff, that wraps it up for today, but let me just wish you the best of luck with your upcoming Hedgeye Macro Summit. And I believe that's gonna be freely available to people to watch. So uh, good luck. Do you know what you're gonna talk about? We
1: haven't discussed it yet, and I'm always amazed that I'm a, you know, they have such a really good lineup. I'm always amazed that they say, we want you to come in there. I almost think it's like, you know, they bring in the, the guy that, that they all wanna make fun of at the end or something, you know, the comic
0: relief for all these other serious professionals. You're gonna do great. I believe they're bringing you in because you might be one of the few people who isn't buying into the inflation recovery narrative And so they're going to, you know, sit you down and kind of look at you like, wow, what is, look at this person. What's wrong with this guy? (laughs) He looks normal. All right. Yeah. Well, I love their stuff. I love their product and uh, I'm sure it'll be a great show. You were on there once before and it was a really good interview and uh, it'll be freely available and uh, we'll tweet it out when it's, when it is available.
1: Yeah. They always do good stuff at Hedgeye and Keith McCullough is one of the sharpest people out there. So it's always good to even just talk to, talk to Keith. So. It should be fun. It will be. It will be. Have a great weekend. Yeah, you too. Thanks, Emil.